Okay, have you ever been to a concert and you get to the concert and you want to get good seats or you want to get in a good spot on the floor, right? So you get there and there is like so long before the band plays. Like you don't even like the opening act and it just feels like an excruciating long time for things to get going. But then when they get going, man, is it unforgettable. This, these two chapters can feel a little bit like that. Chapter seven is like a little bit of a feeling of like, okay, I'm twiddling my thumbs here, or I'm just kind of letting the space and letting the anticipation, I'm letting it build up. Uh, that's what's happening here is the people, if you really think through visually what's going on here, uh, chapter seven, right, we have just finished the, the building of the wall, the whole book so far, I mean, we have weeks there's been this building of the wall happening. There's been this mission. Nehemiah is getting down here and he's going to start building this wall. And then the enemies and the dramas inside and out. And here it's built and we're standing here. And what does Nehemiah do? He switches gears and he says, let me take a census. Let me see what we've got. Let's gather everybody in the concert hall, in the Moda Center. Let's get them all packed in there. Let's figure out what we got. What family lines? What do they have? How much money are we working with? How many donkeys and mules and camels and all this stuff? Just imagine packing all of that right into your thinking. And then all of these people, and then the, the last line, it's poised, right? It's like the, the tuning, the guitarist comes out and you just hear those first strums, right? And it's saying, and when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Just imagine that like electric anticipation, right? Right before things are about to start. That is the moment we're in. So chapter 7 is this buildup. Chapter 7 is saying, look, there's a, there's a genealogy, there's a people of Israel, there's a census. And we are no longer, we are no longer talking about building the wall. We have crossed a threshold in Nehemiah from the first part, which was all about rebuilding a wall. And now we have, we have gathered and we've had this sort of humming and just this moment, shuffling of feet. And we are in this silent space letting these words wash over us, taking this census before we start part two. This is like the intermission, right? And part two starts electric. The people were gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded of Israel. So what is happening is everybody's gathered and they say, let's start the next thing. They want something now. The wall was not the be-all, end-all of their life. The wall was the beginnings of something bigger. And so we begin part two of Nehemiah. Part two of Nehemiah is all about this, rebuilding the people. See, the wall, the wall wasn't the point. The wall wasn't the goal. The wall was simply the first step in a larger sense. The whole book's really been about rebuilding the people. You just didn't know it yet. You felt like, okay, this is, this is we're getting in here. We're getting a city. We've got a strong leader. He's an administrator, and we're going to rebuild this city. But no, what is a city without the people? And so this begins, the next half of this book begins really diving into what, what does it look like when a people are poised and ready for rebuilding of themselves. You'll even notice that this that they ask. It says Nehemiah, they, they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, to bring out the scriptures that God had commanded for Israel. 
And so he brought them out. So we have a people here poised, ready for big time worship. Like they are ready for some really big worship. They are saying, we are paying attention and we are ready. So I want to talk through three points here. I want, I want to look at three really big things that the people are demonstrating here and that Nehemiah is ready to tackle as we're looking, as we're crossing this threshold from rebuilding the wall to rebuilding the people. And what does that mean for us as a church? What does that mean for me? And I want to look at these three questions. The, the, big, the big question first for today, am I paying attention to God. Am I, am I paying attention? God, God is here all the time. We've talked about this at length, right? That God is always and ever present. He's all around you. Are you paying attention to God? And we're going to walk through three pieces here, three major points here as we're looking through this. The first is, am I returning? See, this census is not simply a a tally um, and a beginning to say like a vote, uh, like, a, like it's election time. No, this is a returning. The people are gathered. The wall is built. They are returning to something. So the first question is, am I returning? Am I yielding? And how am I responding? So let's just start at returning. The people, the people have come and they've returned. How do we know that? Well, first of all, the people have returned from exile. Remember, they have come out of Persia, where they were in captivity, where they were, they were in, in a foreign land with foreign practices. We don't know all of the details, but we do know that at times in these periods of captivity, like in Babylon with Daniel, they weren't even allowed to worship the Most High God. They had to worship the king first. So they... There's all these sort of enslavements that are happening, and they finally have broken out, and they've come back to their city, but their city is in shambles, right? So the first thing they do is they seek to honor God, and they also seek to protect themselves, right? Nehemiah cares for them. He loves them, and he says, I'm going to build a wall here. We're going to get things in order here. But like I said, the wall's not the point. So these are a people who have returned, and the first thing they've found is as Nehemiah has had it put on his heart, right? He's saying, it's put on my heart that the wall is not the point. There's a key line in, the, in verse 1, right? Of, of Sorry, verse 5 of chapter 7, the start of what Donna read. We probably missed it, just sort of getting, getting and settling in our minds. He says, then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the peoples to be enrolled by a genealogy. You know, God is never really speaking in Nehemiah. God doesn't really speak, but he's at work. He's at work in Nehemiah. And so this word, he put it on my heart. We've heard this word by Christians around us. We put it, we've even heard it just with non-Christians, right? When something is put on our heart, it's occupying our mind. We can't stop thinking about it. We kind of need to get it out of us. And Nehemiah is like, whether it just dawned on him or whether the whole time he's been going, this is really what I'm itching to do. He's saying, let's get this figured out. Let's get the people gathered. Let's start going on what I really wanted to do here. The wall is not the goal. The people are the goal. What are some modern parallels to that for us? What, what is the reality of the wall not being the goal? If we think about our weeks and our months and our years and we think about what we're after, this means that our finances are not the goal. Our, our careers are not the goal. 
even, even our families are not the goal, right? The goal is to worship God. Like the goal is to be attentive to the Lord. My goal, like my goal that I have to remind myself when, I am, when I'm thinking and praying for and being with all of you, right, and wishing things for you, my goal must be to help you and to help me be attentive to God, to be attentive, to be paying attention. The real goal, the wall is not the goal. The goal is, are we paying attention? Is the pursuit of finances, is the pursuit of things, is the building up of a home, is the creation of a space and a place and being rooted in Portland and having friendships, is the goal of all that simply for my own happiness, my own comfort, my own gain, my own status, or is the goal so that I may be in that new way attentive to God? Do I have children as a way of being attentive to God? Do I date as a way of being attentive to God? Do I, do I work on my garden? Do I meet my neighbor? All of these things are a way of being attentive to God. Because the Israelites, much, 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 much more than we, had a sense of the ever-presence of God. God was in everything. Everything had something to do with God. So whenever anything happened, they looked to a certain level of significance to it, right? So they had come back, and, and the city's in shambles. It, there's, it's not defensible. You couldn't even call it a city. It's just rubble. What does that mean about us and our relationship to God? We're broken people. Rebuilding needs to happen. They begin to rebuild. We have a wall. What does that mean about us and God? We're being attentive. The wall is built. God is gracious. He is good. We have a wall. So everything they're doing, they are taking and they're directing it upward. And they're being attentive to that ever-present nature. See, we don't, we don't have that in the same way just naturally. Our culture pulls us out of that. Since the Enlightenment, there's been such rationalism of saying, no, there is, there is the body and the spirit. There is, there is God out there, right? And Jefferson was big on deism, right? One of our founding fathers was big on deism. That, that it, yes, it all had to happen. It all had to come from somewhere. We had to have a God. But then he sort of created it and he left. He's separate. We're just people. We're just objects moving in space. Israelites did not have this sense. And so in everything they're doing, they're seeking to be attentive. Those who, those who are attentive, those who are wise, those who are leaders are attentive. Because that is the culture of the people that somehow they're defined by their relationship to their God. Okay, so that's, that's the first step in this attentive nature is we've got a people that are gathered, sort of anticipating, like we talked about in the Moda Center, right? They're just gathered, they're waiting. And they ask Ezra the scribe, they say, if God is gracious, right, then come and teach us. And I think it's important here to realize something. First of all, who's this guy? Who's this guy, Ezra? Where, where did he come from? What's going on? Ezra is all over the previous book, right before Nehemiah. If you've had a chance to read through Ezra, remember Nehemiah is kind of a sequel. But it's interesting that Ezra does not come into play at all in this book until this moment. We're, we're like deep in the book, right? We're over halfway through and now Ezra is just first showing up. But Ezra has been at work constantly. He came back and he, as a scribe, he was sort of a, a, the, the man who was leading the spiritual direction of the people, the pastor. 
right? And he's been teaching and he's been working away at these people for years and years and years. He's now 13 years into sort of seeking to deliver the law, the scriptures to these people. And really there's been very little fruit. And now the people come and they say, you're the guy. You're the guy who knows this. You've been teaching us, right? We want to know. Like something has moved in us. The Spirit of God has moved in us to ask you, please teach us. And so what happens next in this, this series of attentiveness in this return is they ask for Ezra to explain the word. Explain it. Read it to us. He, he stands up. They build this pedestal and he has the elders, the leaders around him. And he's reading the word of the law. You just listen to it for, I don't know, how long was that? Eight minutes, maybe, of scripture, a solid eight minutes. And you're probably like, I'm exhausted. Like, I'm exhausted from eight minutes of scripture. He was reading scripture for at least six hours. Just solid scripture, right, for six hours. Going deep, diving into it and looking at it and explaining it and just scripture, scripture, scripture. The people were eating it up. It says in verse five, Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people for he was above all the people and he opened it and all the people stood in holiness and honor. And he began by blessing the Lord. So interestingly enough, this section has a lot of our, what we would call liturgy, a lot of what we do in church. Where does it come from? Well, some of it comes right here. From this book, right? We've got we've got Ezra blessing the Lord, the great God, and all the people saying, Amen, Amen. Well, that's like our call to worship. What Drennan, what Drennan does every day when he blesses the God, when he makes him holy, when he lifts him up. And we say in our hearts, we say, Amen. Sometimes out loud we say, Amen. Lifting follows that lifting up their hands and bowing their heads and worshiping the God with their faces to the ground. Singing, becoming before God. Maybe you walk into church that day and you're, you're not ready for this. You don't want this. You're ashamed that you're here. So there's this component of worship, right? And then if we get to verse 12, throughout all of this, there's a sense of rejoicing, of singing. So that's in there. And then fundamentally, right in the core, verse 8, it says, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. I mean, what is that if not preaching? Giving the sense so that people understand the reading. So here we have the, the building blocks of what a return to God, what's needed, what the bedrock is for a return to God, for a building up of the people. And you guys, we have it at Citizens. It's not like we're missing some core component and we're like, what do we need to add into this to make God move? What algorithm, what part of the math problem am I missing? I've just got to figure it out and then God's going to make a big change. No, no. The, the missing component is in each of us individually here, if it is there, right? And that's the attentiveness, so how is it that, that they can do a call to worship? How is it that they can give the reading of the sentence? How is it the people can bow their heads and worship? That is all in the attentiveness. See, they have. we've talked about having sharp tools. We've talked about being ready, of knowing your stuff. These leaders have sharp tools. Ezra's been doing this work. It took the people's attentiveness. It took the spirit moving in people of them witnessing God's great mercy, of seeing him in everything, 
and of sitting in wait for him and just waiting and saying, come, right? They're seeking the word. They're asking for it. But Nehemiah and Ezra are not like enforcing them. They have asked for it to be read. Now, they easily could have enforced them, but they didn't. They asked. I, I imagine that this was so deeply encouraging for Ezra as the preacher that day. To have the people come and he goes, they've asked me. I'm, I'm Okay, guys, you asked me. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to dive in here. I am so excited that you're asking me. And everything they're doing, they're honoring God. They're standing for the reading of scripture as a way of honoring, like we do with the Pledge of Allegiance, right? When you were a kid in school, I don't even know if they do that anymore. Just a sense of kind of an old-fashioned sense of honor, right? I respect this. I'm standing and listening to this. And then the main thing that's happening here is that they're letting the word feed their soul. It's, they're there for hours. They're gathered together. They're getting the sense of the reading and then actually people are assisting and going around group by group to all the people that don't understand doing sort of an informal Q&A, a small group cohort, right? You could call it that. They're going and they're saying, let's meet together and let's just hear from you what you need to know. What part of this doesn't make sense? Where is the law, uh, in, where is the law not adding up for you? Here, I'm here to answer your questions. So this is what worship looks like, but none of it happens. Nothing comes of this if the people aren't in a spirit of meditation, in a spirit of worship, in a spirit of asking in attentiveness for it. I heard a great devotional talk um, this week uh, on Psalm 1. And Psalm 1, we've talked about a little bit, it sort of opens up the Psalms and talks about what the character is of somebody who is after the heart of God. So it really talks about meditation. And uh, this particular devotional has been my hero, Tim Keller. You guys have heard me talk about many times. Um, and he said, he said, this is what meditation is. And this was just so good. He said, meditation is taking the word and holding it and pushing it deep into your heart until it catches fire. Meditation is taking the word of God and holding it and pushing it deep into your heart and waiting until it catches fire. I don't know about you, but that's so encouraging to me. It's so encouraging to me because in times of seeming fruitlessness, in times of the desert, in times of just the, um, the sense of pause, the sense that nothing's happening, the sense of Groundhog Day, whatever it is that's going on right now, the answer is not that I need to necessarily change something. The answer is to keep holding the word to my heart until it catches fire. Don't give up on that. Hold it deep in your heart. I think that's, that's the foundational piece of this whole passage is that the people have come and they've said, I've woken up. I'm ready to hold it deep into my heart. Yes, Ezra has been preaching at us for 13 years, but something just clicked. I am now returning. I'm awaiting revival. I want to become alive. And I know that the way that that's going to happen is with sustained time in the word. Sustained time in the word. That's, that's all over this passage. You cannot manufacture revival. They're not, they're not trying to game God and get, figure God out and say, if I do just this thing, God's going to come. It's just I need to figure out what it is, pull the right knob or the right lever. No, they're saying, 
oh, it's so clear to me. God wants my heart. He wants me aware of his ever presence all the time, every day to meditate. Psalm 1 says to meditate day and night. Doesn't mean literally every single second you're reading the word of God. It means that there is an ever present knowledge. It means that there's a regularity. It means that you're holding the presence of God and you're communing with him throughout your day as if there's no separation between your church time and your normal life, right? There's no such thing as normal life. You have a life. Right now you're living your life. This is not an exceptional spiritual time and tomorrow is unspiritual. Tomorrow is not, um, let's begin our normal week. That was a nice Sunday. This is just, don't look at it that way. It's not that compartmentalized. It's just all one thing, guys. All one big messy thing. <laughs> all together. And so in the fight that you have with your spouse, in the frustration and yelling from your kid, in the turmoil of reaching a deadline for a paper, in the frustration of a colleague or a client that you're working with, God is in that moment too. He's not just in the holy moments where you're singing praises to him and feeling so close to him. He's just as close to you in those other moments. So that's the return. Second, we get to yielding. I think it's apparent that the, the, in the meditation, in holding this word close into their hearts, there's some sense of yield. So maybe you say, wow, John, I, I think I'm doing the discipline side. I felt like I'm pretty good at discipline. I'm a pretty good rule follower. I know when I should do certain things, and so I'm doing the things I should do. So then the question is, why are these people weeping over the word? Verse 9 says, Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this Day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn and weep, for all the people wept as they heard the word of the God. The word of God. Um, I don't know if any of you recall when we preached on uh, when I preached on Acts two a while ago. It was in the Holy Spirit series. There was a key line in Acts two where Peter's preaching out his window after Pentecost, right after the Holy Spirit has come and descended on the disciples, and he preaches the gospel, just straight raw gospel. And it says the people were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. I think there's such a strong parallel between that and this. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the laws. They heard scripture explained to them. But this is, this is wild. The, the elders and the teachers come and say to them, and they say, go your way. Celebrate, basically. Celebrate. So there's two sides. There's two sides to this yielding coin. This yielding piece might be a really important part for you. They came and they meditated, but they didn't want to search just for the answers. They didn't come thinking they had all of the answers. They came with what we call an open heart. They came with, with a sense of saying, I am yielding to something much, much bigger than me. God, you are bigger than me. I may question what things mean. I may question what its role and impact is in my life. But this is one thing I will not question, God. I will not question that you are in charge. I will not question that your word has authority. I will not question that this is intended for, to inform me and I am not intended to form it. Scripture is not here for you to read into and form into 
your message. It's God's word spoken over and into you. So that's the fundamental difference. If, if you're finding that as you're, as you're trying to open your Bible, you're saying, man, John really wants me to do this, right? Or I know that this is right, but I open this and I just am so frustrated. I find my mind going to what nothing that really works. Ask yourself, are you yielding? Are you reading sometimes just to enjoy reading? Uh, I, I have not been doing this all the time. I'm not going to say I'm a great person at this, but I have started doing this with my kids. Um, we started praying. Donna's prayer device was so great with that, the ACTS of how you pray, adoration, confession, thanks. Like I've been starting to model that for the kids. But I said, look, um, we were having some problems with one of our bedtime stories. Had a, had a lot of kind of meanness in it. And I was like, I don't know if I really want to read this tonight. I don't mind reading some of it if I can explain it to you, but I don't want to read it tonight. Tonight, it just it's not a good thing to go to bed hearing kids call each other stupid and like I don't want to rile that up in you. So let's just I'm just gonna read you a chapter of Luke tonight. So I, I opened up I think the message or a children's version Bible and I read it. And there was this sense of joy for them that I didn't expect of them just listening and then having all of these questions to ask. They just liked the story. Do you read the Bible because sometimes you just like the story? Or does the Bible feel like a task and a duty? See, I think when you read a novel, your heart is open when you read a novel. Because you go to a novel to relax. You go to a novel to, to kind of unwind. Sometimes I think maybe we need to do that with the Bible where we say, I'm just going to go and I'm going to read part of the gospel. The gospels are stories. They're really interesting. They're pretty easy to grasp. They're not like totally weird and full of strange names most of the time. You can, you can get a sense for it. And so, so is your heart open and are you yielding? And then two things will come out of that. Two things will come out of a yield. Out of a yield, you'll meditate and you'll wait for it to catch fire. And what it does, one of two things will happen. You'll either go to weeping, some form of sadness and conviction, or you'll go to celebration, right? You'll either go to a sense of conviction of saying, man, I am so far. These people looked around and they said, what have we done? God is so good. I'm sad. I'm weeping. I'm not necessarily weeping because I think I'm such a horrible person. I'm weeping because I just see God's goodness in a rebuilding of a wall that I utterly don't deserve. But I can't stop crying about it. And, and what's wild is the people that are set out to lead, the people in their church, so to speak, that are set out to lead, come up to them and they say, that's good. I don't want to say that's bad. That's wonderful. Your weeping is wonderful. Now go celebrate. Now go eat great food and have a drink with a friend. Now, now go practice a festival that's supposed to be joyous and celebratory. Go do that because that's what you're missing. I think it's just as likely that if they had read this and they had said, man, God is so great. God is so good. It, it's just, I just, I'm so happy being a Christian. I'm happy all the time. Being a Christian means being happy. They would have said, maybe you need to weep. Like, remember, like God's wrath is upon your sin. Like, you see what I mean? They would have said, they would have said, look, an open heart can take both of those things and hold them in a balance. It can say, yes, there's a deep sadness. There's a deep, there's a deep sense of inner void of me not being enough. 
And then there's such joy in Jesus being enough. If you look at Romans 3.23, this gives a good example, right? If, if we ask the question, do you weep? You, this may come to mind. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You've heard that phrase. It's Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So you may be a person that's more inclined to go to that and say, man, yeah, because all have sinned. Man, I'm a sinner. I have fallen short of the glory of God. But you have to read everything in the Bible in full context. And if you just go one verse further, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and, and, it's not even a different sentence, and are justified, are made right by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See, both are held simultaneously. Paul doesn't ignore one for the other. He says they're crucial to have together. The weeping is actually a crucial step to properly celebrate. The openness and saying, oh, my word, God's wrath is upon sin and I'm a sinner. I get that. Oh, my God, you're saying, you're saying that Jesus has come and saved me? I get that. I get that so much more because I got the first part. That's what's happening here. That there's a reminder in the yield that the word cuts. And then there's a reminder in the yield that the word heals. The word simultaneously cuts and heals us. Never should one be too long without the other. Paul sandwiched those together with an and. They're like in the same thought. He's not putting those way far apart for you to find. He's saying, no, these are the word cuts and heals. Our Christian life should not be a self-pitying lament or even just a lament over sin forthright and only. And neither should it be sort of an ignorant happiness. You know, I get frustrated. There's, there's this sense that if you're a Christian, you ought to be happy all the time. Well, aren't you a Christian? Shouldn't you be happy? And there's, there's a pivotal point in here that really speaks to that. In verse 10, he says, Go your way, eat the fat and drink and sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day of the Lord is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. I think most of the time when we've heard that verse or memorized it as a memory verse or, or seen it on a sign, like that's a, that's, a, that's a phrase that you've seen. The joy of the Lord is your strength. That has been misconstrued so frequently as saying, when you're joyful, you're strong. When you're happy, you're good. Christians are happy, so you just need to get happy and then you'll be fine. We just need to get you happy. I, I think that's an utter misread. It's not that it's wrong to be happy and be strong in God, but it's, it's a misreading. The joy of the Lord, the Lord's joy, is your strength. He's saying, guys, get up because the Lord is so joyous about you. The Lord takes his good pleasure in you, is what one commentator said. The, the Lord loves loving you. He's ecstatic and excited about you. He wants you all the time. You know, the most one of the most famous verses in the Bible, John 3:16, is, is, is just, just all about that, right? His only son, begot his only son, that whoever believes, it's all about that God brought his son for you. He loves you so much. 
And these people are remembering the Exodus, right? They don't have Jesus yet. They're just remembering the Exodus, that we were brought out of slavery, that we were brought out of something that we're God's people, that he's our father, that he has mercy on us. And so it's not that happiness equals our strength. It's not that we're, we're strong as Christians because we're happy all the time. That's not what makes us strong. It's that God is pleased and has good pleasure for us, for our flourishing. He's attentive to us. He sent Jesus to die for us because he wants us. All right, think of the prodigal son. Think of that father who just wants his son back. So his joy is in and for Israel, and he's made this covenant promise to them. And when they come back in this attentive returning and yielding and saying, we want to be with you, he is so ecstatic about that. And so the leaders who, have, who know the scriptures say, guys, no, 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 S- stop. We, we, I, it's great that you're weeping, but Jesus, like, Jesus is out there in the future. The Messiah is out there. There's these prophecies, these, these things. God wants you. Yahweh is for you. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So be strong in that. Be strong that you have somebody that wants good things for you. See this wall? See how it's been built? That's a sign of good things for you. So like a good coach, they're showing that, they're showing that God, God is, is ecstatic and wants to teach you and is going to make this good, is going to make this fun if you stick with it with him, is going to make it worth your while. And I think that's so hard for us. We get lost in that. We either see God as, as somebody who's just wrathful, or we see God as sort of, I guess, loving in sort of a hallmarky way, right? It's like mercy and love are good. But without a sense of gravity, if there isn't a sense of gravity to bear, there's this sort of like saccharine, sugary quality to Christianity. I think some of us grew up with a quality of Christianity that said, um, it's just all good flowers and roses, guys. Like, it's so sweet and fun and cheery. And you're like, but when I got into my real life, none of that lines up, none of that works. So I gave it up. I just let it go because it's out of touch with reality. That God is out of touch with reality. And what, what Ezra is saying so clearly is, no, the weeping opens up the place. The weeping is part of the yielding and opens up the place for celebration. So that gets us to the next part here, which is responding. What happens? They go and celebrate with a feast, a physical, sensual celebration of eating good food and drinking wine and experiencing goodness in order to celebrate God. And what I'm thinking about here when I, when I looked through this is just it popped right into my head is that their response is like the one who builds his house on a rock. So if Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount, he goes through all of these different pieces of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, the best sermon ever told. And he's finishing this up. And you may not realize this, but this, this idea of building your house on the rock was sort of his capstone end point. He said, Right before we wrap up, right? Every preacher right before they wrap up has their application. This is Jesus' application statement. So in Matthew 7, verse 24, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Catch that? Hears these words, puts them into practice. There's his application statement. It's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. We can be attentive to God on the Sundays. We can be attentive to God in the cohorts. We can even be attentive to God in a morning devotional and not be attentive to God in the rest of our life. And boy, will be, we be in trouble. There's not a difference. There's not a spiritual time and unspiritual time. He's saying the response is that everything in your life is built on the rock. A wise man builds his house on the rock. He lays it on the foundation. Everything he's living, everything he's doing, everything he cares about is built on that. It all matters to all of it. And then he's saying, go and do, right? The one who listens builds his house. He's, you're building. We're all building right now. This, he's basically saying, go and do it. Go and do. And what the leaders are saying here is they're saying, go your way and do. And, and they have a number of components folded into this of their going and doing. There's, first, there's a going and there's a celebrating with their neighbors. So there's a communal sense to it. First, they've gotten right with God. And then they've poured into the scriptures. They've said, my soul is ready. So the first step is they've said, my soul is ready. Personally, I'm desiring God. That part's there. And then they said, now I'm going to ask for the word. So notice, notice they ask for the word out of a desire, out of a want. They're coming to church because they want to hear the word. Because they're hungry for it. So first, their soul has gotten to a place where they're asking for God. Then they're asking for God through the word. And then in response, they're going out. They're going, just like we do every Sunday, just like we aim to do, we're sending out, we're going out. But it's not quite that simple. What's also happening here, this whole thing is like a recommitment. We talked about returning. This is like a renewing of the vows for Israel. They've said, Okay, first, the first thing we did is we just came. We took the brave first step of coming and building the wall up. But now we're actually renewing like wedding vows. We're coming and we're recommitting. We're following the old ceremonies. This fest, this feast of booths is an old ceremony that happened right after the, they, the children of Israel were, were left, were, were fled out of slavery, were brought out of slavery by Yahweh God. And so they, they, they made this commitment. And they say, we're going to return to that. We're going to recommit. We're going to renew these wedding vows. And we're going to do that in all these different ways by sharing the table with each other, by feasting and rejoicing. But we're doing those things not just out of gluttony or um, flippant carelessness or just a love for laughing and being with other people. We're doing that. Remember, it's not just all about building the wall and tying this together. We're, they're doing that because that's about God. So what I want to say about that is when you go out, when you're having these wonderful experiences that hopefully we'll have after quarantine, and even we're having now in different ways, right? A late night Zoom call with friends. When, when you do those things, 
This is not simply you connecting with a friend. This is not just a physiological, psychological hit that you get because being social is good for my body. And just like exercise, I need to be social because that's how I be a whole person. I mean, some of us have so over-rationalized ourselves that we've gotten down like the chemical principles of our body. And we're like, we're overthinking it. We're so overthinking it. No, the thing is fun and the thing is good because there's an element of that that God desires for you. But what we do is we pervert it. And we say that element of the good feeling is the good thing in and of itself. No, that the element, the good thing, is just a symptom and a sign that should point you to the one who is good. The hope you feel, the goodness you feel in those wonderful experiences is not the experience itself or about you and how great you are for having that experience. You can't just walk away and say that was a random occurrence. That feeling that you're getting points to something bigger about your design, about who you were made to be. You were made to be a person who could celebrate and have fun with other people and be joyful and get just get that feeling out of a good conversation, right? That's not, that's not a chemical thing. That's not a human biological ape thing. That is, God has designed you for that, and it points to who he is, which is the one who brings that in the most maximum extent, the one who brings that in the most grand and large way. So when you have those great and good feelings, you can point them to God in your attentiveness, and you can begin to fold God in to all of these aspects of your life. You get to fold him in. You get to say, well, that felt really good. What is it about that that was so great? And God will work on you when you do that in company with these other pieces, with yielding, with attentiveness to the word. Sometimes the yielding will bring weeping because he will say, well, that was good, but you didn't really do it for me. You're hanging out with your friend and you're laughing was good, but you were doing that because you want to be liked. And I'm going to show you that when you open up Proverbs, right? Or I'm going to show you that when you open up the scripture. I'm going to show you. I'm going to convict you to weeping. But that's not to say that you shouldn't hang out with that friend and have a fun time with that. It's saying, I am here to redeem that feeling for you. I am here to redeem the celebration. The celebration is not about eating the fat and drinking the sweet wine and even about sharing in ends of themselves. Those are ways in which they are worshiping. I love um, Eugene Peterson, who I'm also a big fan of. Um, I'm, I'm working through a new book of his called Working the Angles. And it's all about, it's for pastors. And it's all about pastoral integrity. And he says, as a pastor, my job, I'm just going to lay my cards out for you guys. My job is to help you be attentive to God everywhere in your life. I was totally convicted by that this week. My job is to, is to help you be attentive to God everywhere. Just like these people are doing, they're saying, let me answer that question. Let me dive into that with you. Let me read the word and help it make sense to you. Let me tell you since you're weeping to go celebrate. If you're celebrating and it's not quite on base, let me convict you so that you can make that deeper and have more gravity. He says your job is to be attentive to that. And he talks about three different ways in which when we meditate, we're attentive. And I'll kind of wrap up in this space. He talks about attentive to work on the soul. So that's this first part that we've talked through, the returning. Attentive to work on the soul of my own soul, of saying, am I right with God? 
Am I seeking him? Am I saying, God, I want you in every aspect of my life? God, do I see areas where you're totally absent? Am I personally seeking to connect with you and have a relationship? So am I attentive to that sort of inner work? And then to the work of what he calls Israel and Christ, which is just a way of, of restructuring, saying, working with the Bible, working with God's word. But I love the way he says it with Israel and Christ. He's saying, be attentive to the way God is working on your soul. And then be attentive to the work that God has been doing for thousands of years. Because if you don't, you're just missing a wealth, a gold mine of knowledge, information, understanding, of spiritual food. He says, so be conscious of your work with Israel and Christ. The work that's been done, that God has done, the history. So be, be inner, be in this inner space, but be aware of the history, the whole spectrum. And then he says, don't stop there. Those two things are good, but what, just, just those two alone won't get you to the full spectrum of what it means to be a Christian. Then he says, see God in your work with your neighbor. In the work that's happening within your neighbor. Gosh, that's powerful. In, in the neighbor that I just met two, two doors down that we're connecting with. To see God in, in the workings of our relationship and the blossoming of our relationship with our neighbor. To my neighbor next door that I've had a harder time getting along with, that doesn't seem to want to talk to me. How is God working and, and how am I attentive? How is he speaking to me in my work with my neighbor there? In your church body, in your family. See, God is at work in every single spot, combining this physical and the spiritual, the weeping and the joyful, adding gravity to the things that are light so that they're more brilliant. Taking the things that, that are uh, so dark and giving the glimmer of hope through Jesus, through Christ coming and dying and saying, no matter what is going on, there is that. So lest we think of the joy of the Lord as this sort of saccharine, happy, um, shallow thing. Because you could say, well, John, it's all this has been really nice. Thank you. Um, these people just had their wall rebuilt. So, of course, they were able to worship. They said, well, God really helped me out. So I'm going to come to church on Sunday because I'm finally feeling good. And I'm going to come and worship with y'all because my life is so great. In fact, I'm even going to talk about how great my life is to everybody. And then my life goes down the tubes and I want nothing more to not come on Sunday. Right. What about God then? What about him then? It's easy to be joyful and be cut to the heart and go through all these things. And even to be real about that, it's easy to really experience that when the things are good, but what about when they're not good? And I just go to Habakkuk 3. Habakkuk 3 is, is probably, if you know this section, you know it because it talks about the deer in high places. But Habakkuk 3 is about an experience of God being literally seeming like he's nowhere. I want to say God being nowhere, but we know God isn't like that, seeming as if he's nowhere. And I'll just read a few verses here to close. Habakkuk 3, 17. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no fruit, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. It's powerful. So powerful. God has, in some places, has taken things away. 
He has delayed the fruit from growing. This experience would be uh, an absolute nightmare for whoever was in it. To have your fig trees not bloom, no grapes on the vine, your olive crops failed, your fields are producing no food. This isn't just a bad year. This is like the end. No food, famine. Things are really going down. And he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Why? The sovereign Lord is my strength. Wow, isn't that like the joy of the Lord is my strength? Such a deep trust in God's promises for you. So I just want to say this. Who is more important than God? Who can keep a promise better than God? Who could be happier than God? in his plan for it, for us? Who could be happier for us than him? Who could more effectively protect us than God? It's because of this that we praise God for his infectious joy for us. We praise God for his holy Bible and his word for us. We praise God that the creator revealed himself to us and sent his son to die for us. That he has given us this life and our friends and our neighbors each day as a place to be attentive to him in all things. To say to him, thanks and praise, world without end. Let's pray. God, I pray that, that you would work in our hearts today. This would be a moment where things are held close to our heart. And I pray that today that this would catch fire in the souls of our church right now that there would be that smoldering, the beginnings of heat catching on. God, I pray that, that you would renew in us a spirit of seeking and desiring attentiveness for you. Uh, I pray this more than anything, God, right now, that you would fill us for a desire for you. Thank you for sending Jesus to make this possible, that we can be loved, that we are forgiven, that there is a starting new, that the returning and the renewing of vows is possible. In Jesus' name, amen.